Okay, we are in 1 Kings chapter number 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And we are continuing to learn from the kings of Israel. And we've been looking, start off with Saul, obviously, and then to David. And then we've been looking at uh, Solomon. And we've talked all along that... Uh, uh, Saul would represent, or we could use it to use him to illustrate the uh, carnal Christian life, and David would be the normal Christian life, and uh, Solomon would be the backslidden Christian life. And uh, we've been looking at Solomon in the recent weeks, and from his life, he started out well, and he honestly had everything handed to him on a silver platter. Uh, I don't know if silver may not be valuable enough as a golden platter. Yeah. Diamond encrusted, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, he had peace. He had prosperity. Uh, he had power. Any other P words I can think of? And uh, anyway, he had all of those things coming to him. Um, everything that he could have needed. I mean, he was set up for success. And David had kind of given him the right direction. He had uh, set him up for success. He had told him what his... Uh, secret to success had been and told him to follow the Lord, be faithful to the Lord, and the Lord will take care of you and he will keep you and he will see to it that your kingdom prospers. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of David's parting uh, parting advice is just to be faithful to God. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, even though he had everything that he needed whenever he started off, uh, he had a good foundation laid by David. He had... Uh, a quiet kingdom that was in uh, a place of prominence and power. He had uh, peace from all those enemies. All those things that he had, uh, the world was before him in a manner of speaking. And uh, several times I've said that uh, basically it was all given to him. You've, you've got it all. What are you going to do with it? And so we've been looking into what he has done with it. And so I think it was two weeks ago, uh, God had given him the opportunity to ask for anything that he wanted, and he asked for wisdom. And not just a general sense, but he asked for wisdom so that he would be able to lead the people, so he would be able to rule them and make judgment so that they would know how to go out and how to come in. And so Solomon received this gift of wisdom from God, and we get hung up a lot of times on this, confusing what wisdom is. We uh, confuse it with knowledge or uh, confuse it with thinking that he had kind of almost the mind of God about things. But wisdom is the ability to, to uh, correctly use knowledge. Not just to have the information, but to know how to use it. And so God gave him this ability to understand how, uh, how people work, how, uh, I guess, kind of psychology. He learned how uh, politics work, how uh, countries work, all of these different things. And so Solomon knew how to put together all of the knowledge and to bring about different outcomes. Yeah. And the reason I'm going through all of this is we often criticize Solomon for being so wise but being foolish. Mm -hmm. And in reality, he uses the wisdom that God has given him for the wrong means. Right. And so what we've talked about is that God gives us all different uh, gifts, talents, abilities, and then it's up to us what we do with what he gives us. Mm -hmm. It's up to us whether or not we are going to use uh, the gifts that he gives us for his glory or for our gain. Mm -hmm. 
And Solomon chose to use the wisdom that God had given him to manipulate outcomes, to uh, be able to politically uh, navigate, I guess we could say, and be able to play the games of the politics at the, at the time, to gain the favor of men, to be able to manage his kingdom and all those kind of things. He used the wisdom that God had given him for personal gain instead of for God's glory. Right. And the really troubling part about that is he was seeking to gain the things that God had already promised him. Mm -hmm. And that is an eye-opener for us as well, because we have exceeding great and precious promises that God has given us, but yet we still try to go about to make them happen on our own. Mm -hmm. We try to go about using the things that God has given us to somehow manipulate, to somehow rig things, so that we are able to get the things that we want, rather than get the things that God has promised. Right. And even, even the verse that I often quote, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we talk about what all these things are. It is worldly wealth and uh, the, you know, the means to provide for ourselves, our food, our clothing, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we put so much effort into supplying those things for ourselves. Whenever we have a promise from God, if we just simply seek him first, he'll take care of those things. Mm -hmm. And so we make a substitution there. And if Solomon would have sought God first, if he would have trusted God, and this is something we need to get back to, if he would have trusted God to keep his promises, if he would have trusted God to bring about the things that he said he'd give him, then Solomon would have been much better off. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is that Solomon's issues, as we're looking at this here, is a, a lack of faith. Okay? And I think that's a lot of times our issue as well, is we just, honestly, we don't trust God. We don't believe Him. And so God promised Solomon. He says, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you a name above all the kings that are around you. I'm going to give you a prominence and all these different things. I'm going to give this to you. And so if God promised it to him, he doesn't have to uh, try to manipulate the outcome. He doesn't have to, to try to scheme and make it work. He simply just has to follow God and trust God to bring it about. Mm -hmm. But that's not what Solomon's doing. So what Solomon began doing is he uh, married the daughter of, e uh, of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which was directly in violation of God's commands. Uh, he began multiplying wealth to himself, getting horses out of Egypt. He started making alliances with neighboring countries to bring about peace and uh, trade deals and prosperity. And so he is using worldly methods. He is using the wisdom of this world to bring about gain to himself rather than trusting God. We find other kings, or we will as we continue our study, we will find other kings that do the same thing where God says, if you will trust in me, then I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. And they go about and cutting up the pillars off of the temple, sending them off to pagan kings and saying, make an alliance with us and overthrow our enemy. Mm -hmm. Rather than going, instead of cutting up the temple, they should have came to the temple, knelt down and prayed to the God that represented. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, we're seeing all these things happen. And what we looked at last week, uh, does anyone remember? I guess it, it limits it to my family, right? <laughs> Does anyone remember what our theme or our title was last week? Uh, 
I'll give you a hint. It reminded you of a song. Never enough. Okay. <laughs> so our theme that we were looking at last week was never enough. And so as Solomon started gaining traction, as he started getting things done, it was his third or fourth year, I can't remember, I think it was fourth year, he set to building the temple. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so he was putting in action, he had put his enemies down, he had conquered these guys that David had warned him about, he was uh, solidly the king of Israel, and so he set to building the temple. Uh, David had given him the plans. He had laid aside all the treasure and everything that was necessary, the gold and the silver and the bronze and uh, even the the trees and all that kind of stuff that was necessary for the temple. And so Solomon set to building the temple. And as he built the temple, he finished the building of the structure of it. And he decided that uh, David liked battles, he liked building. And so he continued the building program and he started building his own house and he spent almost twice as much time building his own house as he did the house of God. And he made it extravagant. Mm -hmm. Okay? It wasn't just that he was making his own house. He wanted to make a house that was going to represent him, that was going to say something about him. It was a statement. And so he made an extravagant house overlaid with gold, and we find that there, uh, some of the stuff we're going to read today, that he had uh, golden shields and things on the walls. He had uh, a huge throne. He had things that were made of ivory and overlaid with gold, and everything was intricately carved and decorated, and no expense was spared. As a matter of fact, even though he had a great pile of wealth that had been saved up, people had given to him his wealth, he was accumulating more wealth, he was still even even having to uh, borrow gold and borrow different things from some of his allies just to finish his building projects. And as a matter of fact, the last thing that we were looking at was that he had given away 20 cities. He had given away part of God's land, okay, the land that God had given his people. He gave away 20 cities as collateral against a uh, large, uh, uh, what am I looking for? A large loan of gold, okay? So Hiram, the king of Tyre, gave him uh, a huge amount of gold, tons of gold, and in in collateral for that, he gave him 20 cities. Now, later on, he gets those back, but it's just, it's showing his craving, his thirst, his desire for more, for bigger, for expensive, for extravagant, for a name for himself, for a reputation for himself. And so this is Uh, what's going on in Solomon's life. And so, like I said, never enough. Uh, God gives him wisdom. He's seeking more wisdom. God gives him wealth. He still wants more wealth. Uh, He finds wives. He wants more wives, right? And so all of these things, he keeps accumulating, keeps accumulating, and it's never enough. So today what we're looking at is opulence and emptiness, okay? Opulence is just the abundance of wealth. It's, you know, extravagant wealth. And that's why I chose that word. But anyway, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 10, we're going to be looking at the story of the Queen of Sheba. And I think we're all familiar with that story. Before we get started, what, is, what would your opinion, your take, what, what kind of things come to mind whenever you think of the story of the Queen of Sheba? Long journey. Long journey? 
Yeah, they estimate she travels on 1,500 miles, so that's like 2,200 kilometers. It's one trip. In the days before planes and trains and automobiles. I always think of amazement because of her saying that she had never seen or heard anybody like him. Mm -hmm. And putting the two of those together, think about the distance, and she had heard about it all the way where she was at. Exactly right, yeah. And she had heard about it, and it impressed her so much, she made the travel, mm -hmm. and she got there. She didn't believe what she had heard, and then after it was all said and done, she said, I hadn't even heard the half of it. Yeah. It far exceeded what she'd even heard. And so that's all pretty interesting, right? Yeah. But overall in the story, do you see it as a positive story or a negative story? Well, both. Okay. How so? Positive because, well, okay. Some of the negative could have been, look at how much he could have been a witness mm -hmm. of God with everything God had given him and the wisdom he gave him. But yet she she just saw the wealth and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Positive that she was drawn to it. Okay. Anybody else? <laughs> You're just sitting there like, maybe if I sit and look straight ahead, he won't call on me. Backfired, but anyway. Okay, as we look at these stories, a lot of times we're just kind of breezing through them without ever digging down into them, without ever really looking at them. And my desire as we're going through this is application. Uh, the things that are written aforetime were written for our learning, right? And so as we're reading through this, as we're looking through it, I, I like to kind of dig into it, tear it apart a little bit. And I said several times, I kind of feel bad because a lot of times we look at Solomon as being a positive figure, but really he's one of the one of the sad stories. He's one of the one of the biggest failures in Scripture. I mean, he started out with every uh, advantage whatsoever. He had everything available, and he completely blew it. Yeah. And that's a sad story. And as a matter of fact, as a result of what he does. He splits the nation of Israel, which we'll look at, I think, next week. He splits the nation of Israel. It uh, causes idolatry to be an abiding presence in Israel yeah. until they are carried away into captivity. Yeah. He had a chance that he could have led the nation of Israel into a golden age spiritually. I mean, with the wisdom that he had, with everything that was given to him, he could have brought about a revival in Israel, mm -hmm. could have thoroughly got the people rooted and grounded in their faith and affected for generations. But instead, he just accumulated. He just amassed. He just got more and more for himself. He didn't pass it to pass the wisdom to his children. He didn't pass the faith to his children. And he didn't impress uh, the importance of serving God and walking with God upon his people, upon his children, with upon anyone. And so, really, in many ways, he blew it because his position as king of Israel wasn't just, I'm the monarch, I'm the king, I'm the boss. 
It's I'm a representative of God to these people. I am to show them the righteousness and judgment of God. I am to lead them in the way that they ought to follow God. And he doesn't do that. And so it's a sad story. And so I said I felt kind of bad because I'm, I'm tearing Solomon apart to learn from his mistakes. And um, I don't want to be the, the killjoy. I don't want to be the, the negative Nancy, whatever you want to call it here. But in reality, we have to learn from their mistakes. They have much to teach us. And even the story here of, uh, of the Queen of Sheba, we get enthralled by the idea of uh, her opinion of him and how enraptured she was by all the sights that she was taking in and all uh, because he was wise and he was wealthy and he was able to answer all of her questions and he was able to broker these trade deals and everything. And it's like, oh, what a kingdom from an earthly point of view, from a worldly point of view. But if you look at it from a spiritual point of view, it completely turns things around. Mm -hmm. And you were alluding to that a little bit in what you were saying. And so we're going to see that today. But anyway, 1 Kings chapter number 10. And I want to read quite a bit here just because this is telling about the wealth of Solomon's kingdom. Mm -hmm. Okay, the opulence, as I said there a minute ago. And so it just kind of goes through and just starts listing and starts telling about, uh, or we'll hear in a minute, about how uh, phenomenal his wealth, how how much his kingdom had changed since the days of King Saul. Yeah. Okay? Within two generations here. And so chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her, uh, told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I have heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came, and mine eyes have seen it, and behold, the half was not told me, Thy wisdom and thy prosperity exceedeth the fame which I have heard. Happy are uh, thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee, and set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king... 170 talents of gold, or excuse me, 120 talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and precious stones. And there came no, no more such abundance of spices as these which the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from over great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And for the king's house, uh, harps and psalteries for singers, there came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. 
And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so we'll stop there for the time being. But as we look at this passage, uh, the queen of Sheba is abiding in a country a long, long way from here. Uh, as traders are tra traversing the region there, going from place to place, uh, she continues hearing this name Solomon. She continues hearing about a little country over by the sea by the name of Israel. That Remember, this wouldn't have been a large country. It would have been an influential country until David started growing. Well, God started growing it, but through David and into Solomon's day, right? So it hasn't been a big country, a big influence on the world stage until recently. But she keeps hearing these names. She keeps hearing these things. And she assumes that they are rumors. She hears about the wealth. She hears about this king and the wisdom that he has and how cunning he is, how uh, able he is to solve these problems, how well it seems that he knows uh, politics and uh, human thinking and the way uh, their psychology and their emotions and all these things work and how he's able to uh, almost see into the innermost parts of man to determine how to make decisions and how to get direction in the things that he's doing. And so she hears about these things all the way over in Sheba, and she say, says there's no way this can be true. There's no way he's that smart. He, there's no way this little kingdom is that wealthy, but she keeps hearing about it. And so finally, her curiosity gets the best of her. She probably studies this for a while, maybe along her travels, because, well, she's a queen. She's coming with a great train of camels and servants. She's probably just riding in a litter, right? Across the desert, she's on top of a uh, an animal. She's in some kind of a, a little carriage, something as they're going across the desert, and she's got time to be thinking. And it says that she tries him with hard questions. So this woman has been thinking for a while what are some of the most difficult scenarios I can come up with? What are some of the most difficult problems I face in my kingdom? What are some different problems that I could uh, maybe foresee happening and gain some insight and some knowledge from him? Where are some failures that I've had in the past that I should have handled differently? And now I know better. What if I go and tell him about it? How's he going to bring things about? Okay. And so she comes up with this litany of questions she's going to ask him to prove him. She's trying to test him, trying to stump him. So if he's so wise, I've got to ask him questions he can't answer. And so anyway, she comes and she puts all of her questions before him. She has brought this great caravan of camels and spices and uh, gold, 120 talents of gold. And as she brings all this to him, he answers all the questions. Uh, she is so impressed. It says that uh, there is... Uh, what, what's the word that it uses here? Uh, there's no no more spirit in her, verse number five. So basically, it takes her breath away, right? She's speechless. She doesn't know how to even uh, respond to this. And so anyway, she realizes, yes, the kingdom it really is this wealthy. The king really is this wise. And as we're reading through this, it's talking about um, the things that she's observing. We're getting a little bit of um, little insight into what the palace would have been like. This is the palace that Solomon has built. 
Okay. And so it talks about in verse number four and five, she's seen the seen his wisdom, the house that he built, the meat of his table, the sitting of his servants, the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. And so as she's taking it all in, she is in the royal palace. Everything is gleaming with gold. There's hundreds of servants. Solomon has built up this great entourage. He has built up this court for his kingdom to where there are so many people at his, uh, at his beck and call. There are so many people who are waiting on him hand and foot. Uh, everywhere you look, there is gold. There is uh, precious stones. There's silver. There's ivory. There is all the ornate carvings. The palace is humongous. Okay, The nicest house she had ever seen. And these are the things that are standing out to her. Now, remember who Solomon is and where he's at. He is the king of God's chosen people. He is the king who is leading the nation of Israel. He is the one who is leading the people who are ruled by the law, by the commands of God, the ones that are meant to be separate from the nations around them, and the ones that are meant to be a testimony a ambassador, if you will, a go-between between God and the people of this earth. The people of Israel were meant to reveal to the world the God of heaven and his goodness to the children of men as they followed him and served him and did the things that he has laid out in his word. And so that was what was supposed to be special. That was the thing that was supposed to be unique. That was the purpose that they were supposed to be fulfilling but as the Queen of Sheba made this long journey, the things that stuck out to her was how gorgeously arrayed that he was, how many servants he had, how big his palace was, how uh, expensively, extravagantly decorated it was. His wealth and his wisdom are the two things that stood out, not his God. And that is the sad thing. And this is where we go back to what I was talking about, that he used the gifts that God had given him for his gain rather than for God's glory. And so anyway, he had used his wisdom to amass wealth and a reputation, and then he used that wealth and that reputation to bring himself glory. And so everyone gave to him, everyone desired to come into his presence and to hear him, and everyone desired to connect themselves to him. And that's something that kind of flies under the radar whenever we are reading this passage, what the Queen of Sheba is doing is she is seeking to connect to this wealthy and wise king that is to the west of her, okay? She's saying, if I can get a political connection with him, if I can establish trade, why did she bring all of the spices and all the riches and things? It wasn't that she just brought him and gave him to him. If you read down through here, it's like, oh, look, she just gave him. He already has all this wealth and all these riches, and she's just giving him more. But then you continue reading, and he gave to her. This was a transaction. This was a trade deal. She was receiving from him. He was receiving from her. It is a, a partnership. It is a connection so that she can benefit, she can amass more wealth, and he can amass more wealth. He can get things from Sheba. Sheba can get things from Israel. And so it was political. It was a trade deal. It was... Uh, just the world doing what the world does, okay? 
And this is what was going on. It was very transactional and it was for material gain. It was for wealth. And so everyone around was wanting to connect themselves to him. They were bringing about treaties and different things so they could benefit. His wealth, his wisdom, all those things would make him a great ally in war. And it was going to make him a great trade partner as well. And so as we study the Queen of Sheba, we got to realize she's not the only one who's made this trip and seen these sites. And so if you wonder how Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, it's very much the things that we're reading here today. I'm not saying the Queen of Sheba came and married Solomon, but I'm saying that all of the kings and the princes, as they are coming to see Solomon's wealth and to hear Solomon's wisdom, they are saying, I need to establish a connection to that king. I need to build a bridge, a partnership with him so I can prosper from him so that I can have an alliance with him. And how did they go about doing that in that time? Well, if you were a king, if you were a prince, and there was someone who had that kind of wealth and that kind of power, you wanted to have to you wanted to, to marry your daughter off to him. And so this is what's going on, is not just the Queen of Sheba, but all of these uh, local and even not so local, I guess, rulers were coming and seeing Solomon and all the things that he had, and they wanted a connection to him, and they were throwing their daughters at him. Okay? That's how you amass 700 wives. And so he marries women from the Hittites and from the Amorites, from Egypt and from all these other lands. Most of them are the ones that the children of Israel either escaped from or conquered. And now he's marrying into them. He's building a connection with them. He is making trade deals and uh, treaties and all these different things with them. And that's what we see going on. And so he's having an impact, but it's economical rather than spiritual. He is pursuing after the wealth of this world. He is pursuing after uh, power and riches and a name for himself. And he is getting that with the gifts that God has given him. And so anyway, she says in verse number six, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Who's getting the glory? Solomon's getting the glory. Now, we come down to verse number eight. It says, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Do you think if you were able to interview all of those servants that were standing there, they would have the same response? As they're watching their king, as they're basically serving him, like, I don't know, some kind of a, demigod or something, right? Where instead of ruling over the people, instead of taking care of the people, instead of shepherding them like David, uh, his father, he has placed himself on a plane above them. He has uh, surrounded himself with all of these lavish riches. All of these dignitaries from everywhere around are coming in daily, waiting in the courts just for a chance to see him. He has become a celebrity, Okay. And so he is constantly being surrounded by the rich and the famous, by the powerful and the connected, and all these other guys are serving him, or basically his slaves in a way, serving him. And so this woman comes in, this queen of Sheba comes in and says, boy, these people are lucky just to be in your presence. Rewarding it really makes a difference, doesn't it? 
That's what she says in verse number eight. These people are lucky just to get to be in your presence every day. And they're probably rolling their eyes and turning their backs and saying, yeah, right. All we hear every day is everyone telling how great this man is. Whenever he is using God's people and God's kingdom to build his palace, to line his pockets, to amass his wealth, to make a name for himself. Yeah, go and take a tour, right? So yeah, he's taking him to the, the palace of the forest of Lebanon and he's got the 500 shields of gold hanging on the walls telling about how much each one of them's worth and everything, right? And so she says, these people are just lucky to be in your presence and get to hear your wisdom each day. So we come down to verse number nine and some people would pick this verse out and say, hey, look, she mentions the Lord his God. But... Let me read this verse to you, and you tell me who gets the glory in this verse. Okay? Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. Who gets the glory in that verse? Boy, God's lucky to find a ruler like you to put over his people. He must really love Israel to make someone like you, to have someone like you, to put you in charge of this people because of how wonderful you are. That's what she's saying to Solomon. And so all the way through this passage, Solomon is getting the glory. Solomon is boasting of his wealth. Solomon is answering all of her questions and she's saying, boy, you are so smart. She's fawning over him like a, a teenage girl over a boy band. Okay? This is what's going on. And so he is a celebrity. And he has used the wisdom that God has given him, the position there in Israel, to bring about himself to celebrity status, to amass wealth to himself, to get power and influence over the region, to make his name known abroad, whether anyone in the region knew his God or not. Talk about a squandered opportunity, right? And so she gives him all of this wealth, and then he in return gives her all of this wealth. It is an exchange. It is a trade deal. She goes back and she's telling everyone that she meets about Solomon and about his wealth. He is becoming well-connected, well-known all throughout the region, and so, as I said, she's not the only one that did this. She is just one of a long line of people who would have constantly been coming through each day. Okay? And <clears throat> as I said, Solomon had this golden opportunity set before him. And instead of glorifying God, instead of living for God, he glorifies himself. Now, if we were to read the rest of this, I don't want to read all of it. I'll read just a little bit of it. But the rest of this chapter goes through all of his wealth, goes through all the things that he's amassing, how many people it takes in his household, how much it is to feed them, how much gold's brought to him, all of his trade and things. But verse 14, it says, now the weight of gold that came into Solomon in one year was 600, three score and six talents of gold. 666, 666. Anyway, talents of gold. 
that's an amount in the tons. You know, most people are buying weight by the ounce. If you buy an ounce, you're wealthy. He's buying it by the ton. Okay? And it says, Besides that he had of the merchantmen of the traffic and the spice of the merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country, and King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into one target, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold, uh, three pound of gold went into one shield, and the king put them in the house of the force of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory. Now get this, okay? Listen to his throne, because everyone that's coming in is going to see him sitting on this throne. Uh, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round uh, was round behind, and there were uh, stays on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays, and twelve lions stood on uh, stood there uh, on the one side and on the other. Upon the six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom, and all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king had a sea, had at sea a navy of Tarshish with a navy of Hiram. Uh, once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And so we see here everyone's coming to Solomon. Everyone wants to be around Solomon. Everyone wants to uh, see his throne. Everyone wants to see his palace. They want to see the shields on the wall. They want to see the apes and the peacocks. He had a zoo, right? As I'm reading through all this, it reminds me of on the, the, the movie Aladdin. I know it's a cartoon. But whenever he makes the wish to become a prince and he comes in with his big entourage and he's got the elephants and the, uh, all the, the monkeys and the gold and dancers and... Do what? Peacocks. Yeah, he has peacocks too, right? Comes in with the whole song, Prince Ali, uh, right? Y'all seen the movie? Okay. So this is what it reminds me of. This is what everyone's seeing, and it's it's a spectacle. It's something to see whenever they come. And so verse 25, And they brought every man his presents, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments, and armor, and spices, horses, and mules, arrayed at a year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, uh, whom, ha whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for a hundred and fifty. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria, did they bring them out by their means? So I said I wasn't going to read the whole chapter. I did. Anyway, as we go through all of that, we just see that he has an abundance. 
He has everything. And so if we would take that and rather than just marvel at the abundance that he has, and we would apply that to the world which we live in, he had everything that the world seeks after. He had everything that the world wants. He had fame. He had wealth. He had any woman that he would have wanted. There was nothing that he would have to uh, deprive himself of. If he had a desire, he could have that desire fulfilled quick. And so he didn't have to restrain himself. He didn't have to uh, budget. He didn't have to save up. He didn't have to plan. He just had to speak the word and it happened. He was almost godlike by man's perspective in the position that he was in. And so he had wealth. He had power. He had uh, women. He had wisdom. He had knowledge. He had anything and everything that mankind desires, mankind seeks after. He has all the very same things that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. That's kind of interesting to me. You look at Satan's temptations on the Lord, and it's the same things that Solomon ended up having, except for he didn't you know, throw himself down off the pinnacle of the temple. But he had plenty of people who were protecting him. I mean, he was dwelling in safety. There was no one that could do anything to him. And so he had all of it. He had the world. But the one thing that he didn't have is he didn't have happiness. Though he had gained the whole world, he was completely empty. And the reason why I say that is because he's written an entire book about it. Solomon, being the wisest man that lived, is also the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And whenever you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to go ahead and turn over there just to read a little bit. A few verses, not a chapter. Okay. But honestly, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, especially if you read it out of context, it is the most depressing book. Honestly, I think Ecclesiastes is more depressing than Lamentations. And that's saying something, right? Lamentations is a funeral dirge. It's lamenting the destruction of the nation of Israel. But Ecclesiastes is the world's wisest and wealthiest man contemplating if there's even any meaning to life. That makes it messed up, doesn't it? And so he says, I have everything this world has to offer, and I'm still completely empty. And so if we start out here in verse number four, now I'll go ahead, uh, now I'll go ahead and start with verse number one. It says, The word of the preacher, the son of David, king, of, king in Jerusalem, Vanities of vanities. Vanity just means worthless. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He says life has no meaning. Life is worthless. He says, What profit hath a man under a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasten to the place where he, where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about into the north. It whirleth about, it continue. So what he's saying, everything goes on in a cycle. The world continues going onward. Uh, everything continues except for man. And man lives his life. He goes to the ground. He's forgotten about. Everything that he has done, all of his works, all of his uh, actions, all of the wisdom and the wealth that Solomon had, he says, one day I'm going to be gone. I'll be forgotten about. My wealth, who knows who will have it. He laments at one place, 
Uh, it's going to go to my children, and who knows if they're going to be wise or foolish. We do. They were foolish. Right? And so he says it's basically worthless. Uh, he says in uh, verse 15, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with my own heart. There was one of his problems as he was communing with his heart. Uh, saying, Lo, I am come to a great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me at, in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive this also is vexation of spirit. That word vexation is a pretty powerful word. He's saying basically it's torturing me to the innermost part of my being. He says, I've looked for purpose everywhere, and I'm tormented. Verse, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increases sorrow. You see why I say this is one of the most uh, depressing books in the Bible? If you read it out of context. If you go on down to chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says, or no, verse 17 and 18. He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man who shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? That was the part about, I don't know if the people who get my wealth, what they're going to be like. So what he is saying here, he says, Life is without meaning. It is pointless. It's without purpose. I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to be forgotten about. Uh, my children are going to squander my wealth. I hate life. Everybody glad they came to church? That's where Solomon came to. And so as we're reading about him with the Queen of Sheba, as we're reading about him with all of his wealth, all of the things that he has, then we come to Ecclesiastes and we get into his heart. We get into his mind and the th way things are going because on the outside, he has everything that man works their entire lives to obtain. Everything that they try to achieve, Solomon had it. And he says, boys, I've been there. I've done that. And it did not bring fulfillment. It did not bring enjoyment. It did not bring me pleasure. It only brought me pain. And we can see this carried out in our own society today, in our modern world, some of the most wealthy people, some of the most powerful people, some of the most well-known people are the most miserable people. Why is it that all of the actors and all of the wealthy people that you see on television are struggling with addictions, are uh, ending up on all kinds of medications and psychiatric help? Why is it that they end up, uh, many of them, committing suicide? Why is it that they can't keep a marriage together, they can't keep a relationship together, and most of the time, they can't even keep their own brains together. Whenever they are everything that people are desiring to become, they've got it. And they said, it's worthless. It's not working for me. It's pretty messed up, isn't it? And so even people today in this world, even the heroes of our modern times, can attest to the fact that the things that we in our flesh in this world are seeking after is vanity and vexation of spirit just like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. So I said several times you have to look at Ecclesiastes in context. Okay, Solomon is the backslidden Christian. 
He is the one that starts out well and messes up. He's the one that goes astray. So Solomon builds the temple. He builds his own house. He dedicates the temple. God interrupts him two times and says, Solomon, I'm warning you, as long as you continue following me, as long as you continue abiding by my words and my truth, as long as, like the song we sung earlier, as long as you trust and obey, you're going to be uh, successful. You're going to do well. But if you turn away from me, you're going to have trouble and heartache, right? Those were the warnings. And God came to Solomon twice and gave him warnings. Basically, Solomon was starting to, to wonder. His heart was starting to pull away from God. And God comes to him and tries to uh, remind him to correct him. David started him off on the right path. And God keeps trying to nudge him back. Solomon, don't go that way. Solomon, don't go that way. He goes that way. And so after he gets away from God, after he backslides, and I believe the, the book of Ecclesiastes was either written during this time or after it. He has left God. He has backslidden. He has forgotten God, basically. If we continue in chapter number 11, chapter 11 starts with the word but. So we're changing direction. We've been reading about all of his wealth, all of the wisdom, all of the people who are worshiping him. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech. By the way, Molech is the one they did child sacrifice to. That was the one that uh, had the arms that stuck out, and they built the fire in the lap, and whenever they got the arms heated up of the metal statue and the fire going good, they would lay the child across the arms of it and sacrifice it to Molech. And Solomon not only built the temple, he built a place to sacrifice to Molech. Uh, and likewise did he for all of his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their God. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. And so this is amazing to me. God's appeared to him twice. He has spoken to God. He has seen the glory cloud of God come down and inhabit the temple. He has heard the voice of God. He has heard from the prophets of God, and still he turns away from God and follows after false gods, after idols, okay? So to get the context for Ecclesiastes, he turns away from God. He is seeking pleasure in this world. He is doing the carnal Christian life. He is going after everything that the world has to offer. He is looking at wealth. He is looking at uh, his building projects. He's looking at 
uh, all the accolades and all the congratulations and all the uh, pats on the back. He is going through and enjoying the company of hundreds or thousands of women. He is going through and amassing everything that he can, just trying to find some meaning and some purpose. He is just trying to find some pleasure and some enjoyment. And it's not working. He has gotten away from God. He is backslidden away from God. He is seeking to live the way that this world lives, and it's not working. And so as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it keeps using the term under the sun. And what that is indicating, what that is talking about, is in this world apart from God. He said if the only thing that exists is what is under the sun, if there is no God, if we're not paying attention to the things of God, just in this life alone, I guess kind of as Paul said, if in this life alone I have hope, I am of all men most miserable. This is what Solomon was saying. If this is all there is, it's worthless. He's echoing the same sentiment as Solomon or as, as Paul. He's saying, if this world is all there is, I've experienced it all and it's worthless. And as he goes through, he's weighing everything out. He's telling everything that he's done throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And he comes to the end of it. In the very last chapter of Ecclesiastes, in the last verse, uh, I'll go ahead and flip over there and read it. I know I've quoted it in previous uh, studies, but Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so as he is going through all of his life, he is looking back after he has uh, searched for purpose and meaning and enjoyment in all of the world's methods and everywhere that uh, flesh would, uh, would try to find purpose and meaning in all the things that mankind uh, tries to bring fulfillment with. He says, I've done all that. It doesn't work. And he says, I've come to the conclusion the best thing for a man to do is follow God's commandments, obey what the things that he has laid out in his word, and just seek to serve him faithfully. He says, then you'll find purpose and you'll find meaning. Uh, What he is letting us in on here is it doesn't matter how much Wealth, fame, prosperity, all those things that we have, it is not what we were put here for. It is not our purpose in life. It is not where we're going to find fulfillment. It's what the world or what the world and what Satan tries to tell us. Satan was in the garden talking to Eve, right? And he told her, What you need is not found in God. God hasn't given you everything that you need. You need to seek and pursue something outside of him. You need to make yourself to be God. You need to eat of this tree and you're going to receive the knowledge of good and evil and you're going to be able to have a a higher purpose. You're going to have a better life because you have done this because God isn't everything that you need. Isn't that what Satan was getting to with Eve? And I've said many times that with the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it didn't have some kind of magical, mystical powers It was that Eve learned by experience. God forbade it. It was just a regular tree. 
Okay, I don't know what kind of fruit. I don't know if that fruit still exists, but God says don't eat off of that tree. And as soon as she ate off of it, she disobeyed God, and she learned what evil was by experience. She learned what sin was through experience. And so she now has the knowledge of good and evil. She now has the knowledge of sin because she has done it. And the reason I'm bringing this out is Solomon knew by experience. He had listened to the serpent's voice. He had went and pursued after all these other things. He started out with a relationship with God, with a knowledge of God, hearing the voice of God, building the temple of God, having one of the most godly fathers that there was, but David, and yet, as he started multiplying lives to himself, as nothing was ever enough, he wanted more wealth, he wanted more recognition, he wanted a bigger kingdom, a bigger palace. As he started pursuing all of these things, and especially the things that God had said, don't do, it just continued and continued and it ate him up. And he learned what it meant to get away from God. He learned that those lies of Satan does not bring fulfillment, but they bring emptiness. And so he's trying to tell us that all the things the world tells you and that Satan tells you to build your life on and pursue after, all it's going to do is make you empty. But if you want to know how to have real success and real meaning in life, he says, get into God's word, follow God's precepts, and strive to know and follow him. And that's where you're going to find the greatest purpose and the most fulfillment in life. Now, there's plenty of Christians out there that says, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd sure love to try to have the wealth that Solomon had. He'd be just as miserable as he was. And so God has given us an entire book here showing us how fruitless the pursuits of the things that this world is after, how fruitless and how miserable it is. You have the man who's tried it all, learned from his mistakes, but we tend to want to learn from our own. And so if we want to be truly wise, we can learn from the wisest man. He says, I chased all those things. They don't work. And if you think you're, they're going to work for you, then you're a bigger fool than he was. But he says, love the Lord, love his word, follow him. Then you will find the real meaning, the real purpose in life. Then you can actually enjoy it. But outside of that, vanity of vanities, emptiness, misery. And so he found emptiness. And so you can find that in chapter 11. And so since he had turned away from God, verse 11 of chapter 11 Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant, notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend, it, rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. So God comes to, to Solomon, tries to get his attention, and he says, Solomon, you have not kept my word. I have warned you time and again. I've given you multiple opportunities. You have had everything in the world, and yet you've still turned away from me. And so because you have violated the, the covenant, I guess we could say, the deal that we made, then... You've lost the kingdom. I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to give it. 
basically what Saul had heard whenever David was going to replace him. And so I couldn't imagine how big of a failure he felt at that time. But that wasn't enough to get him back on track. Through the rest of the chapter here, and I'm not going to be able to read it for sake of time. We need to finish up. But what we find in the rest of this chapter, the Lord stirred up adversaries. Solomon had had peace up to this time. He said, I can make uh, alliances with all these nations around me, and I will have peace. And so he said, through my wisdom, through my policies and politics, I'm not going to have to worry about battles. And God says, sorry, that's not the way it works. You may think you have it all figured out. You may think that you know how to do all this, but he is not able to trust in his own flesh, to live by his own means, to basically spit in the face of God and to get by. So whenever his wisdom and his policies and his politics didn't work out, there was enemies that started raising up against him. We find that there was a king to the south, Hadad the Edomite, came from the south against him. There was another one that came down from the north against him, and they just kind of, they weren't big enough, they weren't powerful enough to overthrow him, but they were enough to be a, a nuisance to him, a pest to him. And so they were coming and raiding the, the outside edges of the, the kingdom, and he had to start fighting them. So he realized his wisdom, his policies, his politics were not enough to keep him safe. If he had been following God, trusting in God, he wouldn't have had to worry about any of these nations. And so his very best efforts, all of his wisdom and his knowledge was not enough. He still needed God, right? Thought he had it under control. He didn't. And then we come down to verse 26, and we're introduced to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What a name, right? But Jeroboam was a man that Solomon took note of. Solomon was in the habit of going around, and any woman who was beautiful, she came to his harem. Any guy who was wise and skillful became one of his, uh, one of his main guys in his construction projects. He's drafting them into the project. He says, hey, I'm working on building this city down here. You look like you're good with your hands. Congratulations, you've been reassigned. Okay, this is what happens with Jeroboam. And so Solomon sees him, that he is a man of abilities and of skills. Uh, verse 28, he was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph, which is Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you continue reading through Kings, you realize that Ephraim is the name that is often associated with the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam is the first king of the northern kingdom. How did he come about? Well, Solomon sees him. He's industrious. He's a good and skillful worker. He is intelligent. And so he says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you over all of the workers of the people of Ephraim. And as Jeroboam is working amongst the men of Ephraim, as he is uh, ordering them around and helping to build all Solomon's projects, he is... At the, at the ground level, if you will, he is hearing all of the complaints of the people because the children of Israel have grown weary of Solomon's excess, of his taxes, of his building projects, of his constantly drafting them in, forcing them into their labors and all of these things. And so Jeroboam is at the ground level. He's hearing all of the complaints. He's hearing all of the people, how they are discontent, uh, how Solomon is running the country. 
And it comes a point in time after God has told Solomon that he is going to lose his kingdom, that the prophet comes to Jeroboam and rends his garment, gives him 10 pieces of it, and says, you are going to take 10 tribes of Israel and you're going to become their king. Jeroboam doesn't do anything to become the king, but Solomon hears about it and he becomes King Saul and Jeroboam becomes David. And Jeroboam has to run away, has to leave that place because Solomon's trying to kill his successor rather than accept what God has done and rather than accept what God has told him that he is going to be replaced. And for the record, guess where Jeroboam flees for refuge? Egypt, which is Solomon's wife's people. And you also find that one of the other kings that was causing him problems also found favor within Egypt. So Solomon says, hey, I can go and marry into the Egyptians. I can get them on my side. And the whole time the Egyptians are harboring his enemies. They are a false friend. So the reason I'm bringing all of that out is that Solomon thought he knew what he was doing. He thought he knew how the world worked. He thought he had enough wisdom. He thought he was able to do it his way, the world's way. He thought that he was able to order his life in such a way to please himself outside of God. And not only did he fall apart mentally and say it's all worthless, it's all vanity, all of the things that he had put together came unraveled. He could not live his life and accomplish the things that he needed to accomplish by his own means, by his own wisdom, by his own abilities. He needed God. God could have gave him the wealth. He could have gave him the peace. He could have made him prosperous. He could have made him of a reputation amongst all the people. And Solomon could have given God the glory and caused the people of Israel to serve God faithfully and be a beacon, a light to all those people, to where all those nations surrounding would not just be bragging on Solomon, but they would be bragging on his God. And they would come to know his God because he lived and behaved himself wisely. But instead, he brought the glory to himself, found out it was all empty, uh, turned his back on God, lost his position, um, had a son that completely blew it, right? And so he had the greatest opportunity and he brought about the worst failure. And so it's, I guess, a lesson to all of us. That's where we got to end up at. A lesson to all of us. You can gain the whole world, but it is empty, it is meaningless, it is worthless without the Lord. And so rather than seeking this world, like the, the old song says, take this world and give me Jesus. And at the end of Solomon's life, I think Solomon finally got it right because of what he wrote at the end of Ecclesiastes. If you read through the Proverbs, you find plenty of things that really go completely contrary to the way that Solomon lived his life. But I think Solomon got right, and if, if he had the opportunity, he would have said, I would have given it all if I could have just missed out on all those things and just walked with God through it all. So do we have any questions or comments? Everything that was really good, he didn't see it anymore. 
So yeah, I think he started building the temple and then he's like, oh, I could build my house. Started building his house and he had his wife and then other men started coming and saying, hey, won't you marry my daughter? Let's let's have this agreement. Hey, we can get wealthy off of this. Like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And it just snowballed. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we've had looking at Solomon's life, Lord. And we feel bad for, for picking him apart, Lord. But we thank you that you put him uh, as an example in Scripture and put his life out there so so plainly, so clearly that we can learn from it, Lord, boards and all. And Lord, I just pray that you just help us, Lord, to learn this lesson that... Uh, the things that we are so tempted to pursue and to make our lives about to build ourselves upon, uh, really it's uh, it's building our houses on the sand. Lord, help us, Lord, to look to you. Help us to desire you above all things, Lord, and just allow you to put in our lives exactly what we need. Help us, Lord, to look to you to, to provide, to protect, to guide, and to lead. And Lord, we want exactly for our lives what you want for us. And Lord, just help us, Lord, to align our desires and our priorities with you. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.